This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's scripture passage is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Amen. Uh, there's a movie that I've referenced uh, a couple times already, Shawshank Redemption. And today I want to highlight another character named Brooks. Uh, Brooks, he uh, went to jail to prison early. And he grew up in the prison cell. And he didn't know life outside of prison. And as he came of age in terms of fulfilling his uh, sentence, uh, he was an old man. And as an old man, he finally got bail or parole. And he was able to leave. And as he left, he experienced life in this free world. And as you see Brooks leave prison and get off the bus and learn to walk in the streets, he doesn't know even how to walk in the streets of this newly developed city in his eyes. Because as he tries to cross the street, there's a car that almost comes by and hits him. And he says that this world has gotten in such a hurry. It's so fast. And I can't keep up with it. And you see him throughout this little you know, part of the story. He goes to work. And he's a He's a grocery, grocery, grocery bagger, and in that he struggles. His, his arms get tired. He doesn't, he doesn't know how to live in this way. He has trouble sleeping. Um, as he has trouble sleeping, he has these dreams, these nightmares of him falling, and he wakes up, and he says, I'm scared. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. I don't like it here. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. You see, Brooks was a free man, but even as a free man, he didn't know how to live in that freedom. And in this passage that we talk about, Paul talks about how we, as free children, continue to revert back to this idea of wanting to go back to prison. Because there's a fear, there's a responsibility before us, and we don't know what to do. So he compares it to a child who is kind of like 
a bond servant or a slave, which was a little bit different back then. And he compares that child to one who has all the privileges but is not yet grown, an adult, to be able to enjoy those benefits. And so as we think about freedom and, and slavery today, as we think about enjoying the benefits of what Christ has purchased for us, the language that we'll use is maturity and immaturity. That to be able to enjoy freedom, you have to actually be mature. That as you grow up as a child, you become mature. As you mature, you're given more responsibilities. You have this freedom as an adult. And so that's the idea that we're talking about, freedom and slavery. But the language that he also uses is, is maturity and immaturity. Because we often revert back to our immature slave, uh, selves wanting to be living in that prison cell, when we're told exactly what to do, and that's easier for us spiritually. And so what is this immature faith? Let's read in Galatians. What, what are the aspects of this immature faith? In verse 1 it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under the guardian's. And, and managers until the date set by his father. You see, the image, as I just mentioned, it's of a child who has this inheritance. But because he's a minor, because he is young, maybe in elementary school, he does not yet have fully access to those benefits. And so he is under a guardian or a manager until he is grown. And the difference, what he, is what he is speaking about in these verses is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? He says in the Old Testament, yes, Israel was the son, right? And it's, it's used throughout scripture that Israel is his beloved child. And so then the question is, what's the difference between being an Israelite in that time and being a son of God a child of God. And then in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, is there a difference between being a son of God here and, and in the Old? And it says the difference is in the Old Testament, yes, you, you are that child, you have an inheritance, but you're living under a guardian. You have someone else in custody. And so though you have all the rights, you can't live out all those privileges. And so in the New Testament, you have grown. And you have all the access to all the privileges. And what he is saying is in the Old Testament, you were treated like a child. In the New Testament, you're treated as a grown-up, one with all the responsibilities. The difference is that in one sense, in the Old Testament, they have not yet matured. And it's something that we have experienced, right? As grown people, besides some of us who are still children, that we, in our stage of growing up, chances are, as you finished college, you would maybe visit back home or maybe you were living at home and as you felt like you were a grown-up, you have a job, right? you're making your own money, you're able to pay for the bills, all of it. Every time you go back home, your parents still treat you like a kid, right? You've experienced that. 
And so you feel like you're a grown-up, but your parents, specifically maybe your mom, continues to question all the ways in which how you spend your money. You sure that's the best way to spend your money? Right? You come home late because you're talking to a friend, and you weren't partying. You were talking to a friend and helping them friend, helping that friend through all the struggles of life. And you're making right decisions. And your parents don't know that. And so you come back home a little bit late, and your mom you know, wonders, are you a grown-up? Why are you acting like a kid? And in that time, maybe when you were genuinely being responsible, in your heart of hearts, you just want what? Your parents to treat you like a grown-up. And the idea in this passage is that God treats you like a grown-up. Because you're in the New Testament era. So don't be like Brooks who wants to go back to prison because the world is too scary and he doesn't know how to take on all the responsibilities of this grown self to he, because of the fears of all of it. He's saying, don't be like Brooks, but understand that you have privileges and all the ways in which as you've grown up and you want to be treated like an adult to have the freedoms to move to Korea or things of that nature, the idea is God treats you like a grown-up. He treats you with freedom. So in verse 3, as he compares in, verse, in, chapter, in verses 1 and 2, the Old Testament era, Israel, to the new covenant and the church and the benefits and the freedoms, he says, in the same way in verse 3, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so he's saying, yes, Israel, they behaved in a way where, yes, they were minors and they couldn't live out and receive that inheritance because they lived in the Old Testament era. In the New Testament era, we still can live like the Israelites, like children given the law, told to do exactly what needs to be done in every situation. Because, like a parent who can't trust a kid, they tell that kid every little thing that has to be done. So they lay out the schedule for them for that day because there is no trust. That kid is unable because that child is not mature enough to think for themselves. But in the New Testament era, what you have to understand is God does not want to treat you like a kid. He wants, you, he wants to see, your, see you grown, mature, to have a freedom in this faith. I mean, imagine, because what he talks about is this faith, but when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The elementary principles are the concepts of the ways in which the world operates. And so what he's thinking here is for the Galatians who are reverting back to Jewish ways, Maybe a works-based righteousness. So they're reverting back. And he's saying, think about how unhealthy that is. That God never intended it for it to be that way. Imagine a child. The way in which they operate with the Heavenly Father is one of a slave. One of a worker. Imagine, in your workplace, you have to get the job done. And when you get the job done, you get the benefits the rewards of that job. 
And the idea is, if you take that mentality to the family, imagine a child, a 12-year-old girl, who is loved by her parents, but that child thinks in her mind, my parents really want me to do well in school. And so in her mind, what she has told herself is I need, I need to get straight A's to be able to live here next semester. If I don't get straight A's, some of you are thinking, well, that's the home that I grew up in, right? If I don't get straight A's, then my parents' love is conditional, and therefore next semester, I can't live here, they won't give me any more new clothes, and I can't eat. Imagine that's how families operated. How would that kid grow up? <laughs> that kid would have some issues. They would have real issues because they don't know what love is. And what Paul is saying is in the New Testament era, there is no room for that kind of mindset. Why? What happens? You see, in verse 3, you recognize what happens because you were enslaved to the elementary principles, and then you continue on. In verse 4, something happens. The fullness of time has come, and God sent forth his son. He's saying you cannot live like a child anymore because something has happened to tell you permanently, clearly, that you cannot question God, God's love anymore because of what Christ has done. If you had that child and the child came up to you and the child really felt like that their, that their parents' love was dependent on their schoolwork, what would you do as a parent? You would embrace them, wouldn't you? And say, oh, I'm so sorry that that's what you understood. Yes, I want you to do well in school, but child, please know that no matter whether you get an A or whether you struggle through school, my love is what? Unconditional. And what would be your hope? Your hope would be that that child matures to the point where they understand your love. Is that, is that not what a mature child is? A mature child is one where they don't question the intentions of the parent, but a mature child is one that knows that the parent loves and makes all the decisions as wisely as possible. Yes, our parents are fallen and all of that. Yes, they've made bad mistakes. But the idea is, what Paul is saying, is that can you understand, in the Old Testament era, there were doubts. They didn't know how God's love would work out. They didn't know how God's plan of redemption would work out. In the New Testament era, he's saying there are no more questions. It is a mature faith that the child has come to understand, oh, this is our father. This is his love. That's the idea of what Paul is getting at. You see, the immature faith can be mistaken for maturity because it's so busy. But that busyness, it's filled with spiritual work. But that work is driven by a fearful insecurity. You take that image of that kid studying all the time so the parent can think, an outsider can think, wow, this, this person, this student is so studious, so mature. Look at all the things that he or she does. But once you know the heart of why he or she is so studious, 
Once you know that it's driven by fear. If I fail, my parents won't love me. It's in that you recognize maturity is not about how busy you are. If you're busy as a believer, it does not necessarily mean that you are mature. You see, immaturity is unnatural as a believer. Immaturity, I'm sorry, is natural as a believer. Maturity is unnatural. So much so, I want you to hear this, so much so, maturity is so unnatural, immaturity is so natural, so much so that when you decide to make your relationship with God right, when you decide, I'm going to fix my relationship with God, I'm going to prioritize Him, maturity is so unnatural and immaturity is so natural that when you decide to give God your all, the ways in which you'll go about it, it's going to be in in an immature way, not based upon the love of the Heavenly Father, but based upon your works, based upon how good you are. You all know the story of the parable, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Right? He takes his inheritance from the father. Right? Maybe he's finally as of age. He grabs the inheritance. He takes it, meaning that he does not care for the father at all. No love for the father. He takes it. He squanders it in reckless living. And as he spends all that he has, a famine comes. He can't purchase any more food. He's got no more money. He finds himself with the pigs eating the food of the pigs. And as he recognizes what he has done, as he recognizes his folly, as he recognizes his sin, what does he say? In Luke 15, when he decides to go back to the Father, he says, I will arise and go to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So far, everything is right. Everything is good. Father, I have sinned. He recognizes his need. He recognizes his sin. But then it turns. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It sounds so godly, doesn't it? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see, maturity is one, mature faith is one, when you, when you base your faith on God's love. Immature faith is one when you base it upon your efforts and your love. And so even when immaturity is so natural, maturity is so unnatural, so much so that even when you decide that you're going to make your relationship with God right, and all those efforts that you put into wanting to know God, it's all done immaturely. God, I'm going to do this, and God, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get this act, I'm going to get this part of my life cleaned up, I'm going to get this other part of my life figured out. God, see. And the whole idea is we will work our way back to God. That's your default. If you do not know that, you do not know the gospel. Your natural default disposition is I will fix it and I will make it right. And the church, unfortunately, is filled with people who have the right intentions but have no idea about the Father. Just because you're busy does not mean you're spiritually mature. Just because 
you desire to read the Word does not mean you're spiritually mature. Because then, then the fundamental question is, why do you want to read Scripture? Why do you want to pray? Is it because you just got to get it done? That's what good Christians do? Or is it driven out of love? I want to read the Word because I want to know the heart of the Father. I want to pray because I want to spend time with my Father. Is that the motive? Or is the motive, if I don't read the Bible, then dot, dot, dot. There's consequences. There's fear. You see, even a busy spiritual churchgoer, with all the times in which they put all this energy into spiritual disciplines and acts of service, could at the end of the day be spiritually immature because they base their faith on their work and not the love of the Father. And that's what Paul is getting at. The Old Testament time, they didn't understand, they couldn't understand God's heart in the New Testament. When they see Christ, they're saying there is now no excuse. See him, know him, know his heart. When you become overwhelmed by that, that's when you grow. And so what's mature faith? We've definitely hinted at it thus far. So what is mature faith? How do we then become mature? In verse 4, as we read, in the Old Testament, the fullness of time finally comes in the New Testament. That coming of age, right? For maybe for us, it's 18 or 21, right? That moment when you can vote or you can drink juice fermented, right? Maybe that is what it means to become of age. In, the, in, in this ancient times, it was often clear that 14 is when you're considered of age, but 25 is when you can take that inheritance and do what you want. You have trustees placed over you. And so even if your parents passed away early, up until 25, you couldn't touch the money. And the idea is, in the New Testament, the time has come. You are now 25. You can do as you please. So in verse 4, it shows what makes us, you and I, what makes us mature, what makes us come of age. In verse 4, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's it saying? It's the gospel. The gospel that you know. The gospel that you heard, you believed, and you became a believer. He's saying, how do you mature in your faith? You don't just know that when you come to faith, you grow and understanding that. Understanding who God is and his love and his love so much so that he sent his son, the son, to live under the law, to live the life that we couldn't live, to redeem us so that on the cross he can say, it is done, it is finished. You, once and for all, are children of God. The mature believer is not the one who's figured out his life. The mature believer is the one that thinks about that story. As we sing, sits at the foot of the cross and says, this is all I need. This is all I need to know about my Father's love. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the cross. And so that's why Paul says in the New Testament, he treats you as adults freedom. 
It doesn't tell you exactly how to do every little thing. Why? Because you are now an adult. Because an adult knows, a mature son, a mature daughter knows the love of the Father. And once you know the love of the Father, as you go out into the world, in this world that's ambiguous in terms of what do you do, should you turn left or should you turn right? Should you say yes or should you say no? It's in this world. He gives you the responsibility and the choice to make these decisions. You are free in Christ. In the New Testament, what's the difference? What's the difference between the Israelite and the Christian? The father sends his son to make us his adopted children. The father sends his spirit to make us know that we are his adopted children. Knowing the love of God makes us mature. It matures us. That's what he says in verse 6. Because you are sons. Because you are sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's the same word. God sent his son in verse 4. In verse 6, God sent his Spirit. It's a Trinitarian act to make you know, not just in your mind, but in your heart, to know how loved you are. From Abraham, right, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the judges, to the kings, to the prophets, all of it, it culminates. The apex of the whole story is that you would know that you are a son and a daughter of God. This spirit that he gives to you, Ferguson Sinclair, pastor, says, the ministry of the spirit of adoption brings us to a deep-seated persuasion that we really are sons of God, that you know it, you're persuaded by it. But notice, it doesn't just say his spirit it says, the spirit of his son. And then it uses a very clear moment. It captures the essence when Christ calls out, Abba, Father. The idea of the cry is a passionate a cry filled with emotion. It's not formal. It's passionate. It's intimate. Because it's recalling a specific moment when Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark 14, 36, it captures the prayer that Christ prayed before the crucifixion. When he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And God says, that spirit that Christ has, has been placed in you where all the desire in that moment, the passion, the intimacy, the desires, the hope, the love of the Father, all of it was placed in you. You are not a second-class child. He sees you and loves you and hears you as he does Christ his Son. The whole story points to this moment. And that word, Abba, it's an affectionate term. It's an intimate term. It's like dad, probably more so than father. So what he's saying is, dad, 
father. Right? A sign of reverence, but a sign of intimacy. But he also preserves the Aramaic, and he's writing to a Greek audience. And that's interesting. So the question is, why does he preserve the Aramaic? Why couldn't he just translate it as dad, father? Why Abba, father? People who speak multiple languages will know the essence of a certain language that's more so a heart language. Uh, if you know me, my Korean is excellent. Why do you laugh? Uh, it's pretty poor. And uh, my parents, when we speak, uh, it's, it's pretty broken uh, in terms of I try to speak you know, my best Korean, but I have to use my English, and vice versa. They, they, they use their Korean, and sometimes they use their broken English, and we, we, you know, we do our best, right? And as we you know, speak, you know, one of the things that I have to do is sometimes speak in English because I can't communicate. But in that, I always call them amma and appa, which means mom and dad in Korean. You know, you could ask me, why don't you call your, your parents dad and mom? Why amma and appa? Why don't you call them dad and mom? I think for many of you who would know, it's just one weird. But two, there is something meaningful to call your parents in that original language. It's what you would maybe call heart language. Right? Imagine, right? You know, you have friends here at this church. Well, you know, you usually probably call them by their name, John, Sarah, whatever it is. But what if you became a little bit more Korean? And so instead of them calling them John, you might call them Hyung. And so you think about your friend who's a little bit older, because Hyung means older brother from a, uh, from a male perspective. Hyung. Would you do that? Many of you would be like, no. But why not? Because it matters. Because words have meaning. Even though it means the same thing. Right? If you are in a relationship, if you are married, right, you probably call your significant other something. Honey, babe. But what if I was to say, you know, call your significant other chagi, chagiya. You'd be like, hmm? Because it means the same thing. It's a, it's a term of endearment. But the idea is the language matters. Paul, what he's getting at, he captures it as he speaks to a Greek audience, the Aramaic essence of what Christ said in the garden, Abba, Father. What he wants you to know is you're not just a child. He sees you as Christ does. And what he desires for you is that you would have the same affections for the Father as Christ had for the Father. Does it not blow your mind away that you and I, by the creator God, sees you? And when he sees you, there's immediate emotion, affection, because he is, you are his child, his son, his daughter. I'd like, to, uh, I'd like for you to do this quick exercise with me as we close. If you can close your eyes. Close your eyes and imagine that you're at the end of your life. You've come to live a long life. When you look back on your life, you're fairly content. You feel like you've lived a good life. You're not full of regrets. And as the end of your life has come, you close your eyes one last time. And you open them and you find yourself in front of a door. 
You don't know really where you are, but you knock on the door, and someone comes to open the door. You've never seen this person, but you know this person is God. God the Father. And God the Father says, who are you? You are not welcome here. My question is, how would you reply? What would be your emotions? Would it be of shock, of confusion? How do you respond? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that all that I have done? I thought I believed. Why can't I come in? Is it of sadness? Or is it well, kind of figures? Open your eyes. Close your eyes again. A new image. You're back home. You're going to go visit your parents. You don't have the key, so you knock on the door. Your mom or your dad opens the door, looks at you, kind of a cold look, and says, who are you? You're not welcome here. How do you respond? You could open your eyes. If you were to go back home, if I was to go back home, and my parents saw me, and they would say, who, who are you? I'd be like, Amma, Appa, it's me. It's your son. I wouldn't go to, Amma, Appa, don't you remember all the grades that I've, you know, all the grades and all the, <laughs> I wouldn't go to that. I would simply go back to, I'm your son. Did you forget? What's wrong? Are you sick? That would be my response. And so what was the response that you gave to the father? Was it, I've done all these things. You know how hard I've tried? Or is it, I'm your son. I'm your daughter. And God would say, yes, you are. You are my son, and you are my daughter. And that's the point of all of Scripture. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.